This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Luke Enrique Gomes, Social Affairs and Inequality Editor at The Guardian joined me to talk about inequality in Australia. Specifically, we discuss the Senate inquiry into the disability support pension, calls to bring back the coronavirus supplement payment and the federal government's pursuit of alleged welfare debts. Then, journalist and author Gabrielle Chan joined me to discuss her new book, Why You Should Give an F About Farming. Then, finally, Lucy Krahulkova, Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch, joined me to talk about the new national surveillance laws which have just passed Federal Parliament. They give security agencies unprecedented powers for online surveillance, data interception and the alteration of data. I'm really, really delighted to be joined by Luke Enrique Gomez, who was very generous to give his time to us in the Radiothon show. And he joined Emma Shortis and we were talking about how much we love Triple R. So thanks to Luke for that. And Luke is now the Social Affairs and Inequality Editor at The Guardian Australia. And we're going to be discussing a range of topics relating to inequality, including the Senate inquiry into the disability support pension, as well as calls to bring back the coronavirus supplement payment. And obviously, the broader context of people really doing it tough financially at the moment uh, because of the lockdowns, pretty obvious, I guess, but it is something that Some people can be quite insulated from if that doesn't directly affect you. So we're going to be talking about that, as well as the government's pursuit of alleged welfare debts, which seems to have been a very common theme throughout their entire reign as uh, people of government. And it's certainly something which uh, has even gone to the courts, as we've discussed on this program a number of times. So I welcome Luke now. Hi there, Luke. And how are you doing? I am very well, thanks, Amy. It's a nice day outside, so I can't complain too much. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm just um, reminding myself it's not Monday, so I'm, Tuesday's a good thing. <laughs> yes, getting <laughs> get through the week. Yeah, I'm nearly at Wednesday. It's really exciting. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there, and I've got my coffee with me, and I hear you've already had yours, so we're probably pretty good to go, aren't we? Yes, I'm all revved up. So. Oh, good. <laughs> well, also, congratulations on your promotion to editor of um, the Social Affairs and Inequality part of The Guardian, which is a big deal. Oh, you're embarrassing me. Uh, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's good, um, mostly because we're going to have two people in an inequality team now. So uh, it'll be me and um, Stephanie Convery as well. So we'll have uh, more people to write about. Uh, all the inequality in Australia, of which I'm sure you will agree there is plenty. There is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Every time we discuss this topic, we run out of time um, because there's just so much to cover and it is really vital. And I know we mentioned this on Radiothon, um, but really it's something that isn't covered by many outlets in much depth. Obviously, The Guardian is an, is an exception. Uh, and we do see some other outlets like the SBS and ABC doing their bit. Um, but it's really something that I think is disproportionately kind of ignored. Um, and I guess it's not surprising because people who find themselves in disadvantage often don't have the means to advocate for themselves and have powerful lobby groups to go to Canberra. Thankfully, we have groups like ACOS and VCOS and other um, not-for-profits who do do that. So that's one good thing. But 
Let's just jump into, first of all, um, what I mentioned at the top of the introduction, which is the disability support pension. Um, this is something which I was kind of surprised there was a Senate inquiry into because I hadn't even noticed it. Uh, and I'm really glad to hear that there is. And I wondered where this inquiry actually came from in terms of what the impetus was and who had pushed for it. Because, um, you know, I, I wondered whether it was a, a kind of government-led thing or whether this was something from the crossbench or Labor. So, I mean, I'm sure I'll leave some people out who deserve credit. Um, so I'll put up front just apologise to anyone that I've left out. But from from my vantage point, it sort of seems like, if, from a parliamentary sense, it, it really was Rachel Seawitt from the Greens who has sort of pushed this issue really hard for a very long time, um, and she's uh, just retired from the Senate. Um, and so I think really there's... I was talking to someone about this recently when they were sort of discussing our coverage of this, how we would approach it, and they were sort of saying, well, what's the being the impetus for this? And um, it's sort of hard to say except that... Um, there are a couple of other sort of reviews that need to happen, which perhaps we can get into it in a sec, but it's about 10 years since big changes were made to the DSP um, and for a long time groups like ACOS have been saying this is really unfair and a lot of people are being uh, um, unable to, have been unable to get support that they need. Um, and in, in, in the parliament, um, Rachel Seawitt, and she's got, you know, gotten the support of Labor in this case to hold this inquiry. Um, and I do think advocates are hopeful that it might lead to to some change in what, you know, you were mentioning, I guess that these issues broadly are undercovered, but I think particularly this issue is very, very undercovered. And you even mentioned you were surprised there was a Senate inquiry into it, and I think most people wouldn't know. But, um, yeah, so I think... It's interesting to see where this will go, but hard to know where it came from. Kind of came out of nowhere, except that you know Rachel Seawitt had been banging on about it in Parliament for so long, and and now here we are with a Senate inquiry. I think yeah. is the short answer. Well, I think that goes to show how important the crossbench are in the Senate because they do champion different areas that aren't necessarily the priority for the government or even sometimes even the opposition. So um, that is great. And I was just looking at the terms of reference. Uh, which seem pretty broad, uh, thankfully. And obviously the first one being the purpose of the disability support pension, the second one being the eligible eligibility criteria assessment and determination, which is something we've discussed in the past because it's so difficult for people to even access the disability support pension. Um, there are a whole range of reasons for that and some very complicated tables that um, yes. are very flawed. And then there's also a, a really interesting one, I thought, which was the capacity of the disability support pension to support persons with disabilities, chronic conditions and ill health which to some people may not seem to be a big deal, but a lot of the people who can't access the DSP are actually people who have chronic conditions and ill health, and those conditions do fluctuate. So that's one of the kind of rigidities of the disability pension is that it kind of doesn't support those people who haven't had a real settling of their condition, um, and it, it's really difficult for those people and they end up on... Uh, payments like job seeker, if anything at all. So Luke, one of the um, the articles that you've got out actually has looked at the, 
the early hearings and one of the hearings um, from last week, I think it was on Monday, uh, and some of the real-life examples from people who've actually given evidence. So I wonder if we could talk about some of these because I think they are so really useful in highlighting just how flawed our system is and how potentially, I think hopefully, outraged people would be to know that this is what uh, people are dealing with. Uh, yeah, I, I hope you're right. I mean, because I think often people have this impression, uh, I think, that was built up from a lot of years of media coverage about, you know, people on the disability support pension sort of, uh, you know, perhaps not being, uh, shouldn't have been eligible, you know, about a decade or, or 15 years ago. That was kind of the impression that had sort of baked into the public. But, I mean, the case, the case that we heard at the Senate inquiry, there were a couple, but the one that I picked out and wrote about was a woman called Kath uh, from Sydney. And basically what happened was she, she was working in a, you know, in a good job. Um, she had her own flat, a fairly comfortable life, and she fell one day in, in 2016 and she broke her neck. And, um, you know, Basically, she says that the neurosurgeon said, well, you normally when we see injuries like this, um, the person's either a quadriplegic or they've, they've died. So Kath was able to, um, she, she's clearly survived and she's had uh, a number of surgeries, which um, I guess have helped her in one sense, but she, she really does struggle. She can hardly move, she can't move her neck at all. Um, the quote she gave at the, the Senate inquiry was basically, you know, saying, you know, imagine trying to cross the road. It takes a very long time. She was being quite a bit, a little bit flippant, but if you sort of picture that, like that's mm. the sort of situation she was in, she still took her, this is a person with serious injuries, um, two years to get onto this disability support pension. She was rejected a number of times, um, as we can talk about in a sec. One of the problems with the system is that you're, um, treat your condition has to be fully treated and stabilised, which means that by definition, if you're still trying to get, um, you know, some treatment, you um, you can't get access to it, which means you have to live on JobSeeker. Now, in, in Kath's situation, her flat was about 800 bucks a fortnight and the um, she was on Newstart at the time, so getting, she said she was getting $662 a fortnight, which that would have been with some rent assistance. Clearly, those figures don't work. So she ended up having to drain her superannuation accounts, um, which is, I guess, that other sort of story or um, issue that we often hear about, um, which is that, you know, women, um, older women, um, often uh, just don't have the support structures when they get to a, a po that point in life. And, you know, this is a lady now who had been working and now is going to end up with no superannuation because for two years she was forced to live on a job seeker payment, which is, you know, as we both agree is, is too low, but yeah. she was on that payment rather than the payment that perhaps could have supported her and, and wouldn't, it would have meant she wouldn't have had to uh, basically draw down on, on the one safety net that she, she had herself um, being a superannuation. So pretty difficult uh, situation and, and watching the inquiry, some of the senators were quite moved by by Kath's evidence because it really was a, quite a shocking story. Yeah, and what is, I mean, there's a lot that's shocking about her story. Uh, some of it is 
really distressing for anyone who's aware of, you know, neurosurgery. I mean, she's had multiple um, fusion surgeries, spinal fusion surgeries, and, I mean, that is a, a very intense kind of procedure to even undergo. So having to go through just the medical side of her condition, let alone having to deal with all these practical necessities of life. And one of those other parts or practical necessities of life that would support her recovery or obviously um, increase her ability to recover some function would be having access to allied health. But as you report in that story, uh, she said she had to ration her psychology appointments and she could not afford to see a physiotherapist. And um, as anyone would know, uh, you know, neurophysiotherapy is quite a specialised area, so it's not like you just go down to the road to your regular physio. Um, this is, you know, a highly specialised area. It does cost a lot of money and people on the NDIS, thankfully, um, can have access to these things like allied health services um, for free. So, I mean, it's staggering to hear these things that someone would have to make a choice over in Australia, you would think this is something that would happen in the United States. Yeah, I think that's right. And 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 I think it just sort of illustrates that whatever people thought about, um, you know, the numbers of people getting onto the disability support pension 10, 15 years ago, 10 years ago when the Gillard government uh, really did, um, you know, tighten it up, um, whatever you thought then, surely it's not supposed to be like this. Surely the aim wasn't for people like Kath to be unable to access um, support, the DSP, which is not a big payment, $950 a fortnight. I mean, that's not – no one who's living on that payment is living it up. No. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think it just sort of – these sorts of cases just sort of serve to, to – sort of say to everybody, okay, 10 years ago there was a suggestion that this this was unaffordable and, okay, we can have a debate about the sort of merits of that argument, but surely this is not how it's supposed to be, I think, is what this sort of story tells you. No. And you do also mention later on in the piece that the eligibility for the disability support pension uh is determined by a series of impairment tables, which I mentioned before, and that they were tightened by the Gillard government. I mean, tightened is probably a very a neutral word. I would <laughs> say that, you know, people were pretty much screwed over by them and kicked off the DSP, which is the reality of what happened. Um, but they're also currently being reviewed by the Morrison government. So, I mean, Luke, do you have any um, insight into that review and whether things are likely to get better or worse? Because I think it was quite shocking for people to watch the Gillard government go through those impairment tables and uh, there might be a lot of anxious people out there wondering what the plans are. So I think the, the first thing to say... Uh, uh, and I guess it's, you know, probably tempers expectations somewhat, is that the reason that they're being reviewed is not because the government itself was like, oh, let's uh, see if we can't, um, you know, make this whole situation a bit nicer for people. It's because the legislation requires that they're reviewed at this point. They're going to expire. So they need to be reviewed. Um, and this process is sort of happening separately, sort of alongside the Senate inquiry, uh, and I suspect that one of the reasons for the Senate inquiry getting up was because campaigners thought, well, if we can sort of put the um, human side to the DSP um, in front of people at the same time as the Department of Social Services is conducting a sort of 
ultimately a kind of bureaucratic review of these this sort of these tables, these these regulations. Um, that might uh, perhaps serve to inform some of that that decision making. Um, mm. and ultimately, this is yeah, it's happening along alongside, and you know the, that I think I believe the consultation process is has concluded um, at the moment in, in the sense that um, most of the groups have already submitted their submissions to that review. I do know that there was was a little bit of um, consternation about the sort of scope of that um, that inquiry or that review into the impairment tables, but at the moment we're sort of waiting to see what will happen. I mean, ultimately, these are going to be decisions for Anne Ruston um, in the sense that if anything good, I say good as in if, you know, those impairment tables are going to be performed in a way that's going to help people, uh, it'll be Anne Ruston making that decision, not the department. So we sort of need to wait to see what she has to say, which at the moment has been very little. Yeah. Well, uh, anyone who knows Anne Ruston's position on, you know, social issues might not be uh, particularly optimistic because I don't think we've seen any really positive signs, have we, around the kind of other areas that people were really concerned about, barring probably the, the independent assessments, um, which aren't in Anne Ruston's uh, portfolio, but this government overall doesn't seem to be in favour of making things easier for people to access payments, does it? Uh, <laughs> Apart from coronavirus, you know, last I mean, too, but yes, I, I guess, uh, you know, I suppose I would, I would make the point that the doubling of the coronavirus supplement was a fairly unprecedented uh, uh, move uh, I don't know what the Labor Party would have done if they were in government. We could only speculate about that, but it was a, certainly a, a very welcome decision uh, and, you know, well, clearly rolling back welfare payments to what they're at now, which is $50 a fortnight above what they were before the pandemic uh, was a very, very tough decision, which, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't think was a good idea. They would argue that... It's the first time welfare benefits have been increased in a, a long time and, uh, you know, it's. I think they say it's the biggest increase to the unemployment benefits since 1986, which is true and uh, very, very, very depressing, I think, really, yeah. because it was inadequate, but they can stand there and say, well, biggest increase since the since the 80s, which I think tells you a lot about where the debate is at in general. Very much. Um, and, Luke, in terms of the other parts of this story, you did also point out the way that the impairment tables and the eligibility rules are so strict to the fact that they pretty much exclude most cancer patients and that many cancer patients actually die before ever receiving the disability support pension. Yeah, so... Um, this is something that I'm going to be doing more uh, reporting on, but and I mean the fundamental problem is this issue that I mentioned before, which is about mm. the fact that people's conditions need to be fully uh, treated, diagnosed, treated, and stabilised. Uh, again, if you're a cancer patient, um, unless you're you know terminal, in which case you can then access the disability support pension, um, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting on it if you know, you're undergoing treatment because the the department will say, well, you, you're not fully treated. So that means that there are people, you know, who are battling cancer. I spoke to one the other day who, um, you know, are living on JobSeeker. <laughs> so they're living on 44, 44 bucks a day, plus a bit mm. of extra supplements. Like, 
you know, the lady I spoke to, she's, um, you know, she was at the time going to get treatment, um, you know, most days and she was feeling just awful physically and uh, emotionally as well, mentally. Um, and then she's also expected to make ends meet on a payment like that. It just seems um, so, uh, well, cruel really, I suppose, is, you know, I should, you know, I should try to use neutral language, but I think in this case it's pretty, pretty shocking really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you mentioned the fact that people die, um, you know, we've reported cases where um, people people die and then they're, they're, um, they are found to have been eligible for the disability support pension afterwards. So it's about 400, um, 400 cases a year of that. I actually learned recently that the department has improved some processes, which means that people with um, ter terminal illnesses have actually do have a more fast track um, process to getting on the pension. Um, I've done a couple of stories about this problem because it's, I don't know, I guess there's the big policy issue, right, but then there's kind of these little uh, loopholes and just parts of the system which just seems so obvious that, like, you would think that even bipartisan, there'd be bipartisan support for fixing those sorts of things, right? Like mm. if you have a terminal illness, you're supposed to get on the DSP immediately, yet for some reason uh, until this recent change, people were still waiting months and dying before they got on it. And, and you know, I did a story a couple of years ago about a guy who, yeah, he, he basically spent his final uh, weeks, um, you know, trying to get on it and he had no money and his social worker said that it was just the most tragic story, he had bowel cancer. Um, and then he died and then in the end the money was paid to his estate, but that clearly wasn't any help to him. So those are the sorts of issues where I think, there might be, um, you know, a little bit more hope that there might be some changes that the government might make. Um, not that, you know, you never know. They might, they might come around on the broader issue. But yeah, so I'm going to be doing a bit more reporting on that because I think it's mm. um, so egregious. And you'd think, it, you know, <laughs> it's an easy fix. It's and a, it just obvious. fruit, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, but we'll see how we go. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that, Luke. I am speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez, and he's the Social Affairs and Inequality edi Editor at The Guardian Australia. Uh, Luke, before we jump into welfare debts uh, and the government's pursuit of people who've received payments uh, in the past and even currently, um, I did just want to pick up on an issue which has been in the news, which um, I did bring up with Dr. Richard Dennis last week, uh, and that was about the whole issue of underlying health conditions and the coronavirus. Mm. And um, I mean, this is something that people with disabilities, uh, various advocacy groups, disability advocacy groups have been very vocal about. Thankfully, um, it's great to hear from them to get the, their perspective on this because they are the ones affected, people with um, immunocompromised uh, situations, you know, they're either taking medication that compromises their immune system or they have conditions that do, people who have physical disabilities, um, a whole range of, of kind of health, chronic health conditions that predispose them to having a, a greater risk of severe disease with COVID. But they have pointed out very clearly that, uh, you know, had coronavirus been managed, uh, had these people received their vaccines, double vaccinated 
early in the phase 1B when they were supposed to, um, you know, they would be at a far lesser risk if governments actually, you know, acted on the health advice and locked down when they would should have locked down and all these kind of things. Uh, and then we see these press conferences and even as of yesterday at the New South Wales press conference and I mean, I I nearly kind of lost it when I heard it. pretty much every single person who died saying they either had underlying health conditions or significant underlying health conditions. Um, and that was all the detail that you really got was their age, where they died, and that they have these underlying health conditions. And I just wondered if you could communicate to us, ha- having spoken to these groups and really understanding their perspective about these issues, you know, what it is that makes it so problematic to people to really um, constantly point out this feature of death and, and you know, how, um, I guess, unhelpful but also deeply hurtful it is to hear it? Um, I think the problem really seems to be that the way that it's communicated, particularly in the New South Wales um, context, um, which, you know, as you say, they kind of just read out the, the ages of the people and, and the sort of region that they're from and then say, you know, almost always, oh, and this person had underlying health conditions, uh, under, an underlying health condition sort of seems to kind of minimise the seriousness of their death or, or sort of say, well, yeah, the person died, but they had underlying health conditions. So, you know, ultimately, what are you going to do? Basically, that's the sort of frustration that I pick up from um, people that I've spoken to. And, and the sort of, there's, it's been really good that there have been articles pointing out that for, um, you know, people with disability, for example, and other, um, you know, health conditions, just because you've got an underlying health condition doesn't mean that, you know, you should, you uh, well, I mean, ultimately, to be frank, doesn't mean that you should die, right? Like we, yeah. and that's kind of how it comes across to people with disability, particularly in the context of us, New South Wales, the starters, thinking about opening up, right? They think because they just look forward to okay, they cast their minds to people are dying at the moment, and the government's saying, oh, you know, there's been seven people who died today, um, and they all had underlying health conditions. What's that going to be like when the the, the city or the state has opened up. Yes, there'll be 70% vaccination across the board, but what about vaccination across, uh, for example, uh, NDIS participants or um, people living in, um, you know, what are sometimes called group homes? Uh, we know that the the vaccination rates in, in those uh, cohorts are still very low. So um, they are rightfully concerned that, when with this idea of living with COVID, kind of the, the flip side of that means that those people with underlying health conditions are sort of cast aside, right? Mm. And I don't blame them for being concerned and I don't blame them for being concerned given that uh, people with disability, um, you know, people in, in group homes particularly, were supposed to be vaccinated at the start of the rollout. It was them and people in aged care homes and then what the government did was, did was say, well, we think the risk is slightly higher in aged care homes, so we're going to prioritise those people. And, okay, um, I, I, the, the data does show that that was the case, particularly in, in Melbourne um, last time, so fine. But 
they never really got round to ramping it up for people with disability. It's still been so, so slow. So um, I don't blame them for being frustrated. Uh, I, I, I'm really glad that that point is being made because um, when we think about opening up, um, depending on the vaccination rates, it shouldn't just be about what's the overall rac- vaccination rate because no. as we acknowledged at the start of the pandemic, which is why the vaccination rollout was structured this way, some people are more vulnerable to the virus than others and that doesn't mean, therefore, that when they pass away, that's the fact of life. It means that we need to do whatever we can to ensure they're protected before the rest of us can, um, you know, or before the, we can open up in a safe way. That, that should be how it works and certainly that's what the, the people that we've sort of discussing have been have been making they've been making that point yeah should be everyone together and the point is that uh, over just over a quarter of Australians in the NDIS um, are fully vaccinated with two doses so it is really very far behind where we're at in terms of the average at the moment um, in different states obviously New South Wales are further ahead given how many vaccines they've had versus the other states. Uh, But it is also an an important point that, you know, if we open up earlier and certainly as early as New South Wales is planning on doing, um, then these people are going to essentially have to become uh, recluses and not go out and do the things that they would like to do because they have to take even more uh, precautions with their health and make sure that they're being extra safe and not putting themselves at risk because the external risks have greatly increased and that they will be disproportionately affected. So clearly vaccination is something that's just so vital. And I just wanted to bring in here, Luke, news that we got from yesterday via ACOS, which showed that the government isn't tracking vaccination data by income status, which means we don't really know if vulnerable communities are being vaccinated at the target rates. So given we've been talking about inequality um, and obviously disability, but clearly poverty is another thing that can increase the risk of people dying from COVID, uh, with stats coming out to say that poorer Australians are four times more likely to die from a COVID infection. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the more data you collect on these sorts of things, um, uh, the better. Um, we can kind of uh, we can kind of guess which areas, uh, you know, by socioeconomic status or by income status, uh, are doing well with the vaccination rate and and not so much. But you know, it really does help to have a sort of a better breakdown of um, so that we can say we can know. Oh, is there a problem with low income people, for example? not getting the vaccine. And if that is the case, and, you know, we can sort of, as I said, we can kind of guess um, with uh, some of the LGAs which are sort of lagging behind. I mean, for example, human in in Melbourne um, is one example, um, which seems to be sort of lagging on, you know, vaccination rates. And we know there are some lower income suburbs in that um, LGA. Um, but if we can have the, the data that ACOS is asking for, then we can know okay, if this is a problem, then what can we do to address it, right? And, I mean, yeah. that's ultimately what these, that's the point of collecting this data is being able to being able to properly identify the problem so then you can know there's a problem and, and, and try and fix it, right? Um, I think it seems fairly, fairly obvious. As you said, yes, there was the um, research from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare which showed, you know, people in poor areas are the ones 
more likely to have died during the pandemic, which was a story that we knew had occurred in other places, but there hadn't really been the, the data to show that in um, Australia. I actually did some work last year looking at where the aged care homes had been where um, people had, had died, and it showed a fairly similar trend. And it's kind of obvious, right, because if you think about where all the cases have been in Melbourne, it's mostly been in the uh, in the north, out in the Hume, Whittlesea area, in the west, in, in the sort of Wyndham area, and in the southeast in sort of Greater Dandenong and Casey. Um, and as we know, those are, in general, lower income areas. So it does sort of serve that that point about the inequality um, that we've seen in the pandemic and that, you know, we haven't all experienced it the same way, I think. Mm. And obviously one of the easy ways to make life better for those who are struggling is to reintroduce the coronavirus supplement, uh, which had been introduced last year and obviously uh, coupled with the kind of doubling of payments and, and that kind of thing, um, at least in JobSeeker, for example, that made a real difference to people's mental well-being as well as financial well-being because they are in, inextricably linked. So we have seen groups, uh, several of them, come out and band together um, talking about the need for this to be reintroduced to ensure that, uh, you know, the mental health burden is not um, increasing in terms of people because obviously it's really hard to access mental health services at the moment and one way of supporting people is to ensure that they're financially able to survive and we've seen, you know, lines at food banks and a whole range of um, examples where we can see that this is clearly a major issue for people in Victoria and elsewhere. So I wonder, do you think that, uh, this call from a number of uh, people, including think tanks, but also doctors and professors uh, coming out and calling for this. Do you think that that's getting uh, any traction with the government? Yeah, so this was, a, um, you know, partly a story that I wrote last week about um, there's a think tank called Australia's Mental Health Think Tank, which includes Patrick McGorry and a number of other people um, who basically said, bring back the coronavirus supplement. It's the best or most decisive thing you can do to alleviate sort of mental health um, issues faced by young people in particular. Uh, last year there was the coronavirus supplement and it made a big difference. This year there isn't that uh, supplement to people who are uh, unemployed. Um, do I think it's gaining traction with the government? Uh, sadly, no, in the sense that I think the government has been dragged to make a couple of changes to its new philosophy in 2021, which was essentially uh, we don't want to spend uh, money on income supports as much anymore. We're going to sort of turn off the money tap, so to speak. So, um, you know, they, they've introduced those disaster payments, which are kind of JobKeeper 2.0, but um, I think they've basically decided that their, their red line is people on welfare support, welfare payments that aren't already working. Uh, you know, ACOS said last month there was about 540,000 people in lockdown who are on welfare payments and are not getting any extra support. Those are the people that, you know, the, the think tank I mentioned are saying need support and I think those are the people that the government at this stage is saying that's the, that's the line we won't cross in terms of adding to those people's incomes. Mm. 
And one other topic I did want to cover with you, Luke, was the issue of the ongoing pursuit of people with alleged welfare debts, because this is something that we've discussed in the past, obviously mostly relating to robo-debt, mm. uh, which certainly did make it to the courts. And um, and we've, we all know how that has ended, although I guess some of it's still ongoing in terms of um, the kind of little tiffs that the government's having about not wanting to release certain information that they have. Uh, but one of the reports that you released uh, and put out there last week was about a really shocking one um, where a, a mother who has since passed away um, was hit with a decade-old $1,600 welfare bill. And um, you put it into context uh, in terms of the JobKeeper payments that companies were receiving where we can quite clearly see how much of a profit they made, how much JobKeeper they received and where that money essentially went, which was into bonuses, which went to shareholders, uh, all kinds of people who didn't actually really need this in the end, uh, which is, I guess, a good thing that they didn't need it in the end, but they're not, mm. in, the, in most cases, um, paying this back. But we are seeing this ongoing pursuit of individuals. So could you just take us through this situation that we're still seeing? Because I think some people would have thought that that court case and that robo-debt issue would have put this all to bed? Yeah, so no, it didn't. I mean, so at the moment there's, leaving aside the the, the case about the woman who um, uh, had her mother pass away and then was hit with the, the $1,600 debt, there's also about 1,200 uh, 1200 uh, sorry, 12, people who are being chased for um, welfare debts. So there's people on like JobSeek or, or parenting payment or the pen, age pension who uh, also receive JobKeeper because they were working and um, due to like mostly due to like an overlap in the, those two payments, they were overpaid and most of them ended up getting debts um, the start of the year or late last year. Um and that's worth about $33 million. And the government is pursuing those people for that money. Um, and as you said, at the same time, and profitable um, businesses like, uh, or we won't name names, but pro profitable companies uh, that receive JobKeeper are getting to keep that money. And uh, at the weekend or on Friday, the ATO also said that it was writing off about um, $180 million, um, from businesses who had um, claimed the JobKeeper payment but it had been a, a, quote, honest mistake. So they'd received the money, they weren't entitled to it um, for whatever reason, separately to the sort of profit uh, or revenue um, aspect. And the, the ATO said, okay, we're going to write this off. Now, I think most people would know that if you make an honest mistake with Centrelink about uh, with a some kind of welfare debt, you uh, don't get that written off. In fact, no. <laughs> I mean, as as you said, uh, in the robo debt situation, the, the government basically was asserting debts to people that were wrong, but mm -hmm. um, and saying, "Can you prove that this is you don't owe this money?" So that's just sort of. You know, it's been called a double standard. Um, it seems fairly obviously to be one from from my perspective. Um, and yeah, I think we're going to see this. Uh, I'm not a you know a political reporter in that sense, but I think this is, issue is not going to go away um, because now um, there is this obvious contrast between the treatment the government 
uh, the treatment of for these companies and the treatment of ordinary Australians who, um, you know, in many cases got overpaid due to no fault of their own and are being told, yeah, you owe us $1,500, please pay up. Mm. Yeah, well, as you've just said, it's they're writing off, the ATO is writing off $180 million. And as you also said, uh, those people who are being pursued for an honest mistake themselves or something that was highly technical, uh, that's $33 million. So, I mean, it's just so stark that and almost absurd, really, to think that uh, you can write it off for some but not for others. That's right. Um, and I, I must say, I, I have a confession to make, I... I Almost maybe like five, six months ago, I kind of bought the government's argument about the sort of callback. I sort of thought, well, they said they want to get the money out as quickly as possible, uh, putting a, some sort of um, mechanism in there that would have precluded, um, you know, would have meant that people would have to pay the money back. It's all a bit complicated. Just get the money out to the businesses, fine, um, and it saved jobs. And I, I actually did sort of think, yeah, that seems reasonable. But I must say, as this issue has dragged on and Andrew Lee um, from the Labor Party has been showing example after example of the big uh, listed companies, you know, giving dividends and, and bonuses going to executives and uh, and then as we revealed uh, last month, at the same time, people, ordinary people being chased for a couple thousand dollars, often in, through no fault of their own. I, I really do think now at this point it's, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. And um, I'm curious to know where this will go because I think the government's just trying to sit it out at us sort of hoping that eventually people will run out of ideas of how to kick the story along. But mm. uh, I suspect that that won't be the case. And so... I don't know what they'll do, but I suspect that the pressure on will sort of continue on this in, in this one. Um, I certainly hope to keep writing about it because it, it does seem fairly ridiculous. Yeah, well, we'll keep talking about it here and speaking to you about it. I'm so glad that there are now two people on the team and on the job talking about these issues at The Guardian and writing and, and doing this investigative reporting. Um, so, yeah, a big thank you to you, Luke, for everything you do when you join us, uh, because it's always so illuminating and it's something that we have to hear. And really, I'm, I think lots of people want to hear about it. So thank you so much. I can only say thanks to, for having me on to, to talk about those issues. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Good luck, Luke, with the rest of your week and thanks for everything you do with your reporting and uh, a big thanks to everyone over there at The Guardian. Thanks so much, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I can't wait to discuss this book with Gabrielle Chan. Uh, she has been a reporter previously in the press gallery at uh, the state and federal levels. Um, she's since moved on from that part of her life and she, um, as she says in this book, met a farmer and uh, I guess the rest is history, although there's a lot that has developed since that point, um, to, the, to the level that Gabrielle has actually written her second book, Why You Should Give an F About Farming. Uh, it's out through Penguin or Vintage Books is the imprint. And before uh, that, Gabrielle's first book was called Rusted Off. And uh, I believe she 
actually joined me in the Triple R studios when we were allowed to meet people in person and broadcast in person. So that was a, an exciting time. I think it was, gosh, maybe 2018. I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, or maybe it was 2019. But either way, it's great to have Gabrielle back onto the program. And uh, she now works for The Guardian and is doing great reporting work on rural and regional Australia there. So welcome, Gabrielle, and thank you very much for coming back onto the program. Thanks so much, Amy. I wish I could be there in person. I know. It was really quite fun. And, and I think there's a different experience when you get to sit down and like look at each other and, you know, nod and respond in <laughs> kind is, of yes. normal way. Human ways. connections. Yeah. yeah. And that's one part of the reason why I think so many people love uh, living in rural and regional areas is because you have a really close human connections with people and everyone knows everyone and, you know, there's a really beautifully tight-knit community. And although that does happen in some areas in, in the city, it's not always the case. So uh, I wonder, you know, having come from a city area and and moved to regional Australia quite a while ago now, you know, what was the allure for you and what also potentially were some of the challenges? Well, the allure was simply that I, I fell in love with someone that I wanted to be with. And the rural side of things to me at that stage was neither here nor there. It was just I was moving to this place where this person was. Um, and it took me a long time to settle into the place, to be frank. Um, probably, I reckon, you know, five or ten years of really um, getting to know the community, understanding the human place on the landscape. All of these things were so foreign to me as someone who had grown up in the suburbs. You know, just even the sense of space. You know, I went from a three-metre-wide terrace in Surrey Hills in Sydney to, um, you know, acres and acres and acres and, and just getting used to that sense of space when you'd had a wholly interior world um, was quite a challenge. So um, I think it changes actually your outlook. Yeah, well, I think being in an urban context and even just commuting back to a regional area, um, you can get a sense of relief at some point because there is a kind of different feeling in a place that's crammed in with less green space and a lot of noise and pollution and you get out to a regional area and there's just something about it that shifts your mentality yeah, it is. And it's not to say that it's sort of better or worse. It just, I do, I do think, though, it, it does change. Well it's, well, it's changed my brain, put it that way. Mm. I mean, I think there has been some scientific studies about the effect of nature on brains that are pretty interesting, but um, it does really change your world. And I think that's why it's important to have green spaces in cities as well. Yeah. And not all farms are the same, as we discover in this book, why you should give an F about farming. And obviously in New South Wales, there's a lot of diversity in terms of the types of farms. And um, as I was saying to you, I interviewed Charlie Massey on the program earlier in the year and um, he highlighted some amazing case studies in his book, Call of the Reed Warbler. And uh, you highlight in different ways the fact that there are so many different approaches to agriculture and farming. So I thought we might spring from your own farm 
um, and to get a sense of what it's like where you are um, as a, a, a starting off point. Yeah, so we we uh, are on a very traditional sheep and wheat farm. Uh, it's a multi-generational farm uh, run by my husband's family um, and it, it's, it's a mixed farm in that it has animals and crops. There, we went through a stage, uh, not us personally, but I think farming went through a stage where they pivoted to m- more crops than animals and I think that's maybe coming back now um, as as the science changes on uh, what's required for you know things like increasing soil carbon and um, and that sort of thing. So, but very much a tr- traditional farm. And around this area, which is west of Canberra, uh, it's still largely family farms around here. Um, when I started doing the interviews for the books, though, um, I discovered all sorts of models of farming and changes, particularly along riverways like the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, where big irrigators are moving in. Um, there's a lot of interest from corporate farms uh, in in irrigated crops, like um, nut crops, permanent plantings. They're trees, essentially, that have to be watered every year. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there's the a, a rise in regenerative models, the, the um, whether they're large or small, um, really changing the way that they look at uh, what they do. And you'll often get a regenerative farmer like um, Charlie who will think of themselves as grass farmers and use animals just as tools, you know, that animals aren't the, the key thing, the, the, it's actually looking after environmental, um, certain environmental things and landscapes rather than um, thinking purely about production and yields. Mm. And we'll get to that aspect of the book in a moment, but I wanted to touch on the earlier chapters in the book and look at the agricultural sector and farming from that big picture that you do uh, and and obviously its significance to Australia, not just in an economic sense, which is clearly you know very big, um, but also in this cultural sense as well. So uh, you point out that Australian farmers manage up to sixty percent of the country's land mass and account for up to seventy percent of its diverted freshwater extractions. And you draw from that really a point that is we all have a stake in farmers doing their job well. Um, and that's because there are so many existential threats that you highlight and that many farmers are well aware of, being climate change, water shortages, soil loss, energy production, natural disasters, zoonotic diseases like COVID-19, population displacement and geopolitical trade wars like we've seen with China in recent times. So in terms of that big picture that I've just kind of referenced and that you explore in great depth, what is the significance of farming to Australia? And I know this might be quite obvious to farmers, but for the, for the uninitiated, uh, you know, what are some of these touch points in terms of its significance? Okay, so we're, we're seeing this, you know, the change in um, world governments of, uh, around the climate change challenges uh, and and emissions challenges and 
All of those things you touched on. So the farmers manage up to 60% of the landscape. So that's a really important job, you know, how we how we manage landscape and humans are a part of landscape. Humans have been a part of landscape for, you know, a very long time. But often in our political debates, we have these kind of crazy binary debates where you say either we lock up environment or we slash and burn. Well, we've got to work out ways for humans to live on landscapes. So for me, the question is not about how to feed the planet because we do produce a lot of food. The question is how you feed the planet while looking after the planet. Uh, and, and I think that's the challenge is the part of the challenge that farmers are starting to address now and governments are thinking about it. So for example, uh, in the United Kingdom, as they've come out of Brexit, they've come from a very subsidised system in the European Union where, where farmers are subsidised for the production, their food production. The UK is now looking at a system where farmers will uh, get the same subsidies, but those subsidies will be targeted at what environmental services they provide. So that is... Um, improving their water quality, improving their um, their habitat on their farms. So that becomes a, a different income source to the income source of food production. Um, it, we have to acknowledge uh, that eaters have a have a part in this play. You know, I often hear when we talk about, say, water debates around the Murray-Darling Basin, you know, those bloody irrigators, they're taking all this water and uh, – but you know, if you're eating the food that that the irrigation grows, then there you do have a, a part in this whole story. So, so there's that aspect. Um, farmers, on the other hand, have to acknowledge that what they do within their boundary fences has an effect on the broader climate. So you can't say, oh, well, this is my land and, and therefore I can do whatever I want. We acknowledge that there's this trade-off, there's this contract between farmers and eaters, land managers, and I include, you know, I'm, I want to underline, I include Indigenous farmers in this and Indigenous land managers. Uh, indigenous rangers are managing a huge proportion of Australia's land and that program is increasing Um and, and it has been funded for the medium term now, which is a big step forward for the Indigenous ranger programs. So all of these aspects, how we manage our continent, how we feed ourselves, all of these things are going to be critical in the coming decades as we sort of head towards a population globally of $10 billion. And that that global population projection is, is really pricking up the ears of big um, capital uh, as they get more and more interested in both the food production business and the landscape management business because these two things uh, are going to be income streams uh, over the next three decades. Absolutely. And you do point out later on in this book that uh, on the climate change point uh, that we're really lacking government leadership, not just on climate change, obviously, but the ways that it affects food and agriculture uh, and all the kind of areas and sectors that are related to that. Um, you point out that at least 12 departments are involved in national food-related program. 
programs uh, covering responsibilities in agriculture, fisheries and forestry, industry, education and employment, finance, foreign affairs and trade, families and housing, Indigenous affairs, health and ageing, infrastructure, PM&C, regional Australia, environment and treasury. And you go on to point out something I thought was quite important, which is about the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility um, that pointed out these responsibilities um, and was a cross-disciplinary organisation designed to support decision-makers to manage climate change risks. Um, it sounds like you say that it was finally declared deceased in 2019, uh, being established by the Howard government and gradually starved of funding from successive coalition governments. It's interesting to see that this government uh, has had a real disinterest in climate change apart from some of its pet projects uh, that involve technology. And yet farming and food security uh, really is tied to climate change. And even these great bodies who do the research and write the reports have pointed that out. So I wonder whether, you know, part of the reason why we're not making progress on a national food security policy is because climate change makes up such a big part of it. Yeah. Um, the all of those uh, reports, all of those policy institutes, we used to have something called Land and Water Australia, which was a really important um, policy institute uh, funded by government to, to look at these strategic assets, you know, the important environmental and national strategic assets. And it, uh, when I started doing the interviews for these books. I sort of went into the agriculture sector and started talking to people about this, but it was actually the um, the national strategic bodies like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, that was doing some deep thinking on this. The, um, the Defence Department has done submissions to various government and parliamentary committees on the importance of dealing with land management and climate change as a as a um, defence uh, related issue. That these things are kind of fundamental to our our strategic interests, and yet we think of them as this kind of well. Well, the debate certainly has been in the last decade as if it's just some little you know. Uh, argument off to the side about, you know, whether or not we want to keep a certain amount of furry critters. This is kind of fundamental to our survival as humans and to the landscape survival. And so I think you're seeing more um, voices now coming out. I mean, even today uh, in The Guardian, there's a former senior defence official, Cheryl Durant, who's talking about the strategic weaknesses on climate policy. Uh, soldiers are trained to kind of consider threats, you know. Journalists, um, we sort of look at national architecture and, and sometimes find, you know, press it for weaknesses and see where the weaknesses are. And I think that we have to be more realistic about, you know, what's happening around us and connect the dots more um, because these policy institutes, land and water is dead now, it was defunded by, uh, shut down by a, a Labor government. You know, NCAF, the climate research facility shut down under a Liberal government. 
there's not that sort of long-term thinking, I think, and that's part of the problem. You know, we're getting into this political cycle where governments are saying, oh, well, I don't like that because it was the idea of the last government. We won't continue on with that. We have to have some long-term thinking if we're going to if if we're going to get through these uh, these real kind of fundamental holes in our policy architecture. Mm. <clears throat> and you do point out that uh, Australia has no national food policy, no national drought policy, a Hunger Games-style water policy a cursory climate policy and no vision for how land management and environmental assets should fit with farming and food security in a warming climate. And I've, something that really, I guess, struck me later on in the book that relates back to that is how government is shaping farming and how they have set in place, uh, I guess, policies and support structures to encourage larger scale farms and corporatization of farming, uh, whereas I guess they haven't provided that same support to the small and medium-sized farms. So I wondered if you could give us an idea of that landscape in terms of small, medium and, and large-scale farming and how that has been either supported or um, been neglected by federal governments. Well, I think this is a this is a kind of philosophical question in in some respects. Since I was a baby journalist in the eighties, you know, we've we've grown up with this sort of deregulation agenda that really started with the Hawke Keating government. Uh, and I interviewed John Caron, the former agriculture minister in the Hawke Keating government, um, and he was really interesting because he said, you know, we were trying to open up the economy, but at the same time we wanted to keep some kind of um, uh, underpinning of national resilience. But I think Governments have got carried away with that whole deregulation agenda to the point where we get to the start of this pandemic and uh, government turns around and finds, oh, we've got no capacity to make personal protective gear or we've got no capacity to make hand sanitizer in a pandemic um, or we've got no capacity uh, to, to grow certain particular foods that may be shutting down on borders elsewhere. And so I think we we really bought into the idea that a deregulated market was the natural, in inverted commas, market system, uh, that that humans would naturally um, trade in open ways. But it, it's just not true. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we still have regulations. We still have laws. So essentially uh, the way I see it is that we re-regulated to... to favour other interests, I think, is what happens. And so now an example might be the water market where you, you, we've created one of the most laissez-faire water markets in the world. Water is a commodity. The theory was fabulous. You, you, you make water a commodity, you value it, put a high value on it in times when it's short, like drought, and it will drop. The price will drop in times when it's plentiful. Um, but what that did was it sends water as the government designed to the highest possible use. Now, the, the, the view at that time was that annual crops, which have more flexibility, would get more of the water, that we would be growing these things that are suited to Australia as a drought 
um, quite a drought. Droughts are quite common in Australia. So if you were going into drought, you just wouldn't grow the crop, you wouldn't use the water, all well and good. But what's happened is highest value on a market global market price are things like almonds. Mm. Almonds are grown on trees, which are permanent crops. Permanent crops need water every year. And so, you know, we're stuck in this cycle where we're growing more and more um, permanent uh, crops like nuts, and we're moving away from things like dairy. We're moving away from the annual, the annual crops. And you know, is this how we would design a system if, if you know, we had our that we had the hindsight that we have now? I mean, the other thing about water markets is they're not very transparent, so it's hard to see into uh water markets that are priced on different valleys different places uh and so that's creating an advantage for people who have big resources to get the analysts to work out the technologies some of these systems require an email through a gate at a certain time and that favors people who have uh big money to invest it doesn't favor the small to medium family farmer who's getting home at the end of the day and trying to do the water trades on top of everything else they're trying to do so you know i think we have to have a think about economic diversity i'm not saying all corporate farmers are bad i'm not saying all big farmers are bad big corporatized families are bad i'm just saying we want to look at this so that we've got some economic diversity in the system because the other thing that very large operations do is they have large-scale efficiencies, they require less people, they use less more technology. And so those little towns that government talks about every time there's a drought, how important it is that we have these little towns, that's actually contradictory with, um, you know, their push for more global capital into farming. Yeah, and you point out that, you know, this productivity through technology um, doesn't necessarily increase the number of employees that a farm will uh, have on their books. So that's another kind of component to it. And I wanted to pick up on that water chapter because you show just how Australia is influenced by global agricultural issues like uh, in 2015, when the Californian drought pushed the almond industry to look globally, um, because then uh, they were producing 80% of global export almonds and uh, found Mildura. And, you know, as you said, the rest is history in terms of the utilisation of water um, and that yearly requirement of high levels of water to keep almond crops going. Um, so when we're looking at that global picture as well, I wanted to pick up on something you raise, and it's really kind of like the crux of this book, which is that, quote, we use a proportion of imported stuff to grow food and then sell that food in Australia or ship it out as the raw commodity so others can turn it into the final product. Um, that picks up on what you've just said around manufacturing uh, as well as obviously being reliant on other countries, which we saw with the PPE issue and the hand sanitizer earlier in the year. So I wondered if you could just draw out that essential sentence there and, and how Australia potentially used to do more, um, but we don't now. And, and I guess that leads to food insecurity and other types of insecurity with a decline in manufacturing and this reliance on countries like China for chemicals. 
Yeah, I, we we heard at the start of the pandemic, if people can remember back when we had those empty shelves and the government was trying to calm everyone down and say we are we are, are very food secure, we produce a lot, we, we export more than half of what we produce, uh, nothing to see here. And I get that they were trying to calm everyone down and not cause a rush on the shops. But the, the reality is we are part of global... Uh, supply chain interdependencies. So, you know, every crop we grow, we need to use the tractor. 90% of Australia's fuel is imported. Um, Pretty much every widget uh, in the shed that we use here is either imported. Um, The the headers, the tractors, everything uh, comes in from overseas. And so, Yes, we produce a lot of wheat, we produce a lot of beef, we produce a lot of almonds, but, Amy, if I want to get my wheat to you in the form of a loaf of bread, um, how do I do that? I can't dump a tonne of wheat on your doorstep for you to mill and make into bread. Um, How do I get them to you in, in the form of noodles? So what happens now is, say, Australia grows a lot of wheat, The wheat goes overseas to places like Indonesia. It's made into noodles, put into a packet, brought back on the supermarket shelf. Does that make an Australian product or does that make an Indonesian product? So these things, we're very interdependent. We we don't make things like, um, last time I checked, Tetra Pak. So we we might produce milk. But... I can't get it to you if uh, if I don't have the Tetra Pak to put it in. So it's a bit simplistic to say, you know, we are this massively food secure nation. Like I think we have to look again at interdependencies. And again, we've done the reports. We've done the work. Stephen Bartos, uh, for a senior public servant, has done a fantastic report in 2012 about food resilience and it identified after the Queensland floods which is when it was commissioned that there were all these holes in the food supply chains he wrote that report he said the biggest threat are multi uh, or um, disasters and and supply chain threats in combination like bushfires floods pandemics he actually wrote that in 2012-13, way before we had the bushfires in 2019, followed by the floods, followed by the pandemic. <laughs> it's, mm. you know, there are smart people here. I'm just the journo. There are smart people that have written all these reports. You know, Professor Andrew Campbell, head of ACR now, but did this fantastic re- report on how we need to diversify our our supply chains. So you have short local supply chains that, you know, go where your food is just produced in your district, regional supply chains where it goes out maybe a bit further or into the capital cities, and then global supply chains uh, so that there's resilience. And I... I, I had calls from um, a lot of small farmers who said, you know, might be producing and milling their own wheat and baking their own bread. And they were absolutely run over in the pandemic because everyone suddenly started thinking, oh, I can't get my my products from my big 
duopoly supermarket, I might have to look locally. And so they picked up a lot of new customers um, in that period because people were starting to think more creatively about where to get their food. And remember also we all went into veggie growing. Uh, There was a supply of uh, shortage of seeds and, and shortage of flour on the shelves as we all started baking. So all of these things I think really need looking at again because even though we think we've solved the problem, the food issue, it's not as uh, seamless as we think. No, and you do say that when you spoke to Stephen Bartos in April 2020, he was quite optimistic, saying, quote, the good thing is that coming out of COVID, I'm sure this is going to be more of a priority. Uh, And you point out more than a year onwards, nothing has changed. So, I mean, we can have these kind of moments of clarity, just like we had with bushfires and climate change, uh, but it's what you do after that and keeping it on the agenda, which is so difficult in politics at the moment, and obviously for those who are advocating for change. Um, I wanted to pick up on one area before we get to regenerative farming, and that was about dairy farming, which you mentioned earlier, and that Australia is really um, walking away from that more and more, and dairy farmers have been put under a lot of price pressures as well, and that would have been something people would have seen in the news and you've referenced about the the dollar milk and that kind of thing. So I wondered, what's that underlying story as to why Australia, you know, who's had a, a certainly an identity or at least part of their identity beyond sheep and wool um, as being dairy farming and dairy farming nation, why are we not seeing as many dairy farmers nowadays? Uh, the dairy story is a really interesting one because dairy was heavily protected uh, in Australia's history and then went through the deregulation era under the Howard government. And so there was a, a, a sort of shaking out of the industry, that initial shaking out where the, where the numbers fell rapidly and and dairy farmers had to increase their scale in order to um, stay in the business. So there was that stage. The the second stage of the dairy shakeout, I think, has been uh, the the dollar milk and the and the pressure uh, on producers to um, to create a cheaper product. And there's no doubt there are dairy companies, very large dairy companies that are are managing to make money out of dairy. It's harder for the small to medium people in in that industry. And then the third stage of this is the water stage that we're seeing now. And and I think um, as we went into drought, the last drought, which is probably a couple of years ago now, water prices just were became too high for the average dairy farmer who relied on irrigated feed crops for their cows. The prices were too high for them to compete with the almonds that get a much higher price in the supermarket shelves. So if you're if you're squeezed on the one hand to produce a very cheap litre of milk and then you, your production costs in order to feed your cows to keep them milking are too high, the two just don't add up. You know, yeah. something, something's got to give. And, and it was a lot of dairy farmers that ended up giving. And I think a lot of people may not know this, but, you know, Australia is now a net importer of dairy, so we, we're not making as much dairy as we uh, used to. And I think that's a question that 
that w- another question we need to think about. So the modern economic paradigm, um, the market first paradigm says, well, if you can't produce as produce a litre of milk as cheap as, say, New Zealand, well, you just drop that industry and you buy it from New Zealand. But as we've seen, you know, through the pandemic, we had that argument about rice too. But Vietnam, who is a, is a big exporter of rice and we import from Vietnam, they shut their, their shut off their rice exports because they wanted to keep the food for their own nation. And so then you're left without a product on the shelf unless unless you've got local growers. So in a sense, they, all these policy arguments are long-term arguments, um, long-term strategic policies that we need to bed down. But but that the debate is trapped in this short-term political cycle. So yeah. the easy answer is always, oh, well, you just let the dairy industry grow, right, because we can buy it cheaper from New Zealand. And you can buy it cheaper until you can't. And exactly. then when the price when the price rises, you end up paying a higher price that you may have been able to pay to your own farmers to keep them to keep them, you know, producing locally. So all of these things are trade-offs. And I'm not saying that um, you know, we should go back to a protection era by any stretch. I'm just saying you may want to have a look at this because, I mean, hey, I'm 55. I've got grandchildren. Uh, I'm thinking about my grandchildren more than myself and thinking, well, what world do I want to see them land in? They're all value judgments, right? There's no right or wrong answer in any of these questions. It's just like what do Australians want and then how can we put it in place? Yeah, I don't think anyone would... Well, not people that I'm aware of would know that we're a net importer of dairy. So it does kind of highlight that we're not having this as a public discussion amongst many in the population. Clearly, it is, you know, restricted to certain sectors and and groups of people that it directly involves at an economic and business level. And sadly, we're, you know, engaging or supporting short-term thinking in our governments. So, you know, I think personally, that we shouldn't be doing that and we should make sure that we have enough access to these products when no doubt another pandemic down the track will occur, which we've been warned about for decades now. Um, Gabrielle, I wanted to just finally touch on regenerative agriculture and your chapter on disruption, given that it's something that really does... um, well, disrupt the sector, and it is a very different approach. And you highlight the inherent tensions uh, between those who are engaging in the more traditional practices of farming versus the regenerative practices. Uh, and you use a case study from the Heffernans who are doing regenerative work to improve their landscape, to plant 60,000 trees and shrubs on his land, um, fencing off creeks and dams, developing a fish sanctuary for their southern pygmy perch, uh, all these kinds of things. He, Vince Heffernan, for example, you say, is a sixth-generation farmer living and working on 1,200 hectares Uh, near Dalton in New South Wales and engages in biodynamic farming. Uh, So I wanted to, I guess, touch on that case study you brought in and also ask about the people who might be hesitant or um, have resistance towards this type of farming and and maybe the disconnect that might exist and and perhaps 
um, that they're not necessarily that far apart. But there seems to be, I guess, a lot of ongoing tension between these t- practices and, and approaches to farming. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so Vince is uh, an interesting case because he has been doing this for a couple of decades now uh, and biodynamics is no sort of new uh, system of farming. It's been around for a while. Um, but I think the tension in the industry is is. Uh, around maybe more the stories and the marketing uh, that that in just the word regenerative itself, I say in the book, uh, is like a trigger word to some um, more traditional farmers because the implication is, well, if you're not regenerative, you're degenerative. Um, the interesting thing, to, a couple of things about regen farming, that to me, the definition, and the definition is very is is argued in the industry. But for me, a definition of regenerative farming is anything that improves your environment and landscape on verifiable measures. Right. So if you've mm. got increased ground cover, if you've got more trees and habitat, if your soil carbon is going up, uh, if your water quality is going up, or any of those things together and you're measuring and you're watching that, then that's regeneration by definition, right? So I think um, the industry gets caught up in all these different um, practices. What does it mean? What does it do? Well, the bottom line is if you're regenerating, you're improving your outcomes. Also improving your bottom line. You want to improve your bottom line. Um, I think the the other interesting thing about regenerative ag is it has incredible um, sector engagement. It has incredible market engagement. Eaters, people who buy the products, love the idea of regenerative farming. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. So, you know, you can have good farmers and bad farmers using all different systems, but I think the bottom line is you have to engage as a farmer with your eaters uh, and, and you know, there is going to be pressure to increase your environmental outcomes. One of the bright spots, I think, in government policy is David Littleproud, the Agriculture Minister's um, Carbon Plus Biodiversity Programs, which is now looking at how farmers within the, the, their current economic systems can be paid an income source for improving their carbon, improving their biodiversity. And I think that would go a long way in sending the right economic signals to farmers that you can actually get paid for this. Um, Part of the disconnection between the two is a sort of fear that if you change to a more regenerative system, you're going to lose income. Because the current way that farmers are paid is on yield. The bigger your crop the more you're going to get paid because farmers are price takers largely. The interesting thing about Vince Heffernan's model is he has created this regenerative system through his biodynamics. He also gets paid more for his lamb. He gets paid, you know, restaurants have picked it up. He he sells whole animals um, boxed to uh, customers, home customers. You can't buy just the chops or the mince. You've got to buy the whole animal and use it. Um, it makes it simpler for him. Uh, it's it it cuts down on waste. 
Um, so all these new systems that are coming in, I think, are really going to disrupt the farming landscape. And there's a massive heated argument about which one's right and which one's wrong. I think there's scope for everyone uh, in, a, in a very large country like Australia, but definitely heading in the, in the direction of, you know, you're going to have to look after the environment in your farming system, whatever farming system you use, because global there's going to be carbon tariffs in other countries. People want to see into your supply chain, and that's the big change coming in farming. Mm. And it's interesting because you also say that he partnered with a specialty butcher called Feather and Bone um, and has been doing so for the last 14 years, um, and they've been buying those whole animals as well, not just the the kind of direct customers, which he also sells to, um, supplying the restaurant trade, and I guess being another outlet for his work and also meaning that he still gets paid higher rates than in the supermarkets, which are wanting uniform products and, uh, as he pointed out, that they're making a huge amount of profit on the meat that they're actually receiving. Yeah, I, and I think that was a big thing for Vince was that he felt like he was in an economic stranglehold um, from the supermarkets. And he, he he made the point, which is actually really true, he said no one's uh, as disinterested in where their product goes as a farmer because they're kind of on to the next harvest or on to the next job. You know, they're not thinking about where it goes after the farm gate. Um, but uh, he said, you know, they can complain about um, red tape and green tape and all this sort of stuff, but they just let the processors and the retailers um, screw them in some senses. So uh, I think the economic signals are really important part of um, getting the environmental signals right. And I think if Little Proud can get this program off the ground, it will be really interesting to see farmers by 2030, maybe they're going to get start getting a portion of their income from environmental services and a portion from food production. And that, I think, will be a big breakthrough if that can happen. Yeah. And just finally, Gabrielle, you know, you've mentioned there that people buying these almonds that are using up all the water uh, in Mildura as just one example, and obviously buying from supermarkets the cheaper milk and buying from supermarkets the, the meat that's sold at very um, high profits for supermarkets and large companies. I mean, these are all things that we are actively engaged with as consumers of food. Um, some also produce food who might be listening right now. So what are some of the things that we can directly do to show that we give an F about farming, which is the whole point of this book? Well, I think connecting up with local growers is one thing that um, people can do. I think, um, uh, you know, buying Australian product uh, is another thing. Thinking about the food miles and thinking about, um, uh, you know, emissions in terms of, of that sort of thing. Um all of these things, I think, just educating yourself on on where the food comes from and what you what I guess what values you want to show. Uh, the, <laughs> I really loved um, talking to Mike Lee, the the food consultant in America, who who thinks about you know food 
as emotion, food as politics. And now younger generations are really using food to signal what values they want to show. And and it's very um, it's very controversial in terms of, you know, whether you're going to eat meat or not or whether you're going to, I think, just moderation, right, like mm. a little bit of everything. And that was the point that Mike Lee was trying to make, you know, almonds, um, maybe almond, almond milk starts as this sort of, um, idea that oh well you might be able to save dairy cows or whatever from um, from what they have to do, but it, it's blown up into this kind of very large industry that's sucking up a lot of water. So whenever we love something, we we love something too much. We tend to get in, and I I do it myself with my food choices. You know, I love one thing, and so I'll have a lot of it. Um, it I think the the message that was um, put through to me from so many people I interviewed was just like a little bit of everything, a bit of moderation. You know, um, don't rule anything out or in. Just try a bit of everything, and I think that's my mantra going forward. Yeah. And it's also really good for you nutritionally because you do need that diversity of food sources. Exactly, exactly. I think that Mike said, you know, you see this massive diversity when you walk into a big supermarket and and it basically comes from, you know, 12 different uh, plant crops and, and five different animal species and goes to create all these different products. So you think you're getting diversity, but actually we we – as humans, we love to concentrate and specialise. Um, I just think a little less specialty and a little more sort of interconnected um, food systems would be a great thing for Australia. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gabrielle, for taking the time to chat with us about your new book, Why You Should Give a F About Farming, which uh, is really extensive in terms of the topics covered and very engaging. So I appreciate the work you're doing on uh, farming and regional and rural Australia. Thank you, Amy. It was an absolute pleasure. Great to chat and I hope you have a great week. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM 102.7 FM on your dial, also streaming at rrr.org.au. So wherever you are tuning in from, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here with you to talk about some of the most important issues that perhaps aren't getting the airtime they deserve. And this next topic definitely uh, covers that. There are some people talking about it, but I don't think to the extent that it should be, given its importance. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Lucy Krahultsova. She is the Executive Director at Digital Rights Watch, which is a fantastic group who, if you listen to Triple R, you would know about. And uh, I certainly got a chance to speak to them about an issue that came up a couple of years ago about um, surveillance and new laws at that point that were quite concerning. Um, and they even raised the concern concerns from Labor, which is uh, sometimes not the case. We often see a lot of bipartisanship around national security policy and lawmaking. So it was interesting to see that 
um, things like the Assistance and Access Act were of a concern then. Uh, I'm really pleased to welcome Lucy to talk about the new national security laws and surveillance laws in particular that have just been passed in Parliament. The short kind of title for the laws is the Identify and Disrupt Act 2021. So uh, I welcome Lucy now and thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, uh, it's a big topic. So thanks for <laughs> diving Isn't into it? it with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, lucky um, on this show that I get to give these topics the time that they need uh, so that we can actually understand the nuance of things. And, and that's something that can really be lost in media because we have these kind of short stories and um, short articles and, and obviously a shortening attention span as well with so much information coming at us at a great speed. So, I mean, it is interesting to note that it this uh, particular development, yes, it's made The Guardian, uh, yes, it made ZNet, which is a kind of IT-specific news website, and a couple of others, but and Michael West as well. Um, but it certainly hasn't, I don't think, made as much uh, media as it probably should. So I wanted to, I guess, start out with that as a context and to also look at the previous uh, national surveillance and security laws that have raised alarm bells for Digital Rights Watch and other groups. Um, and so, and looking at the situation that we found ourselves in in 2018 and the issues there, because they, they kind of haven't gone away and Labor certainly did say that they would be dealt with. Uh, we didn't see Labor win the election unfortunately for them, um, because they had plans to address this later on. And the coalition government also said that they would address it. They just wanted to push these laws through parliament over the Christmas period. Um, but we haven't seen things really change in any meaningful way. So could you share with us that background context for where we are at the moment in terms of national security and surveillance? Absolutely. Um, I love giving little bite-sized <laughs> <laughs> summaries of a huge topics. Um, yeah, so in 2018, uh, this is the Assistance and Access um, Act, or TOLA, as it's lovingly known. Um, and it was basically pushed through um, just, yeah, as you say, just before Christmas with the premise um, that if they didn't pass um, this legislation and something happened, um, at the time there was suspicion that there might be another um, sort of terrorist um, attack in Australia, um, that if they didn't um, pass the law, that it would be on their hands. Um, so really sort of dirty um, tactic to force the hand of um, parliament. And we've been promised amendments um, ever since then. Yeah. Still, still nothing. Um, and obviously since then, it's also gone through a series of reviews. Um, so the Independent National um, Security Legislation Monitor, <laughs> that I love acronyms that just rolls <laughs> off the tongue. Um, but he was engaged um, for sort of an, in a uh, impact assessment on human rights. So how this impacts, uh, you know, people's right to a fair trial, freedom of expression, privacy. Um, and um, I think I struggle to remember how many submissions I filed <laughs> in this entire process. I think it ended up being five or six in total and they're lengthy. So a lot of work, a lot of effort. Um, the, Monitor ended up filing his report, I think, in the 30th of June last year, 2020, uh, recommending a series of changes, um, and none of them have been acted on. Um, so 
it's just disappointing that that we're you know these promises get made. Um, there's a huge kind of and also expensive you know lengthy expensive uh, process looking at these legislations and all the recommendations that are made um, by these bodies that we've entrusted with you know giving us sort of independent um, takes on these issues. We just disregard them. And uh, I think that's we're seeing the same now with the bill that we're looking at today in this segment, the identifying disrupt bill. It's the same same sort of story. But yeah, that's sort of the disappointment <laughs> where we landed. So that bill is mm-hmm. still unamended, um, and it's being used. Um, earlier in the year, uh, we had a big announcement, Operation Ironside, um, which was sort of this huge drug crime busting operation. Um, that the Australian AFP worked um, on with uh, FBI in the U.S., um, they cited that they used the powers um, in in TOLA. So we know it's being used, still unamended, um, still without accountability uh, and transparency and a lot of safeguards that we'd like to see in that legislation. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not the first independent report that's been ignored by the coalition government. And I'm sure even Labor has uh, not necessarily followed all things when they were in government. But it is quite concerning that we see these successive reviews. And there was actually a promise from the coalition. And uh, that was sought by Labor and the crossbench to actually make sure that these amendments that they deemed absolutely essential would be made. Um, Can you just give us another of these bite-sized explanations around what TOLA actually did in terms of the powers it gave and what Labor was so concerned about, particularly Senator Penny Wong was one of the faces and voices in the Senate pushing back really strongly and and she certainly received a lot of criticism um, and blowback after giving up or giving in to the coalition's demands. Um, well, uh, maybe you can you can refresh my mind what Penny Wong was saying at the time. <laughs> but um, what in terms of what the bill actually does is um, give law enforcement um, additional powers to um, request sort of technical assistance um, or backend assistance from digital service providers. So this is something that law enforcement and intelligence agencies struggle with, uh, as they say in the digital age, um, that a lot of the Power is just centralized, you know, and largely U.S.-based um, sort of tech companies who don't love to cooperate with foreign law enforcement. <laughs> um, that I think is, in a way, a good thing because it creates a really high threshold um, for um, countries around the world, and it's not just democratic countries who who would like to um, have the sort of information that people share um, through the platforms. So generally speaking, it's a good thing. But yeah, Australia got frustrated and passed this legislation that gives them the power to um, actually serve individual people working at tech companies um, with um, sort of requests and and um, and warrants to give them privileged access or um, install vulnerabilities um, in, in the back end of systems. And it's incredibly dangerous, obviously, um, because they're not Often, actually, in the legislation, they're not allowed to tell their employers. <laughs> so, in in a way, they're uh, they could be compelled to undermine a system and not tell their employer. And uh, be obviously, uh, no, nothing can only be done for um, the good guys. So, I, I think that's sort of the line we often get from governments or law enforcement is it will only use it in the right sort of scenarios and we're only using it to catch criminals. But the reality is if you 
install a, a backdoor in a system, it can be used by anyone who realizes it's there. And the more governments that pass this sort of legislation, um, it's going to embolden other governments to do the same. Um, and it's starting to get really difficult, I think, for the tech companies, uh, especially when we see democratic governments um, take, you know, such authoritarian approaches um, to regulating the digital space. So there's a lot going on. I'm not sure what Penny Wong was saying at the time. Um, it's been three years. <laughs> you- oh, I just I remember because she was leader of the Senate. Um, yeah representing the opposition. So I guess she was running the Labor lines most publicly. It wasn't her own. I mean, I'm sure it was her personal view as well, but uh, Mark Dreyfus as well, the shadow attorney general was um, just as vocal talking about, you know, the concerns they had around the, what it was called at the time was the encryption bill in terms of how it was colloquially phrased. Yep. Um, but yeah, we did see, as you say, that global concern and the global pushback that this would, as you already mentioned there, set a precedent uh, and enable other governments and embolden them to do similar things. Um, let's now jump to this new development now that we have a, a kind of refresher on what was going on <laughs> what seems like a lifetime ago, um, which is this new mass surveillance mandate, which is what the Digital Rights Watch um, have termed it on the website, which you can check out uh, all the information you guys have got up there. Um, and it's looking at the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Bill, which then obviously became an Act 2021. And uh it said that it came from a parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security, which often does see bipartisan support between the coalition and Labor governments. There's not many times where there is kind of dissent. They usually find a point of agreement before a bill reaches uh, the parliament. Um but we did see that crossbenchers in this issue did not necessarily support the, the bill in the form that it was, even with the amendments. So I wonder, could you share with us the background of how this bill came to be and what its purpose was? Yeah, well, the bill was introduced in, I think it was November last year. Um, and I remember doing a breakdown at the time and I couldn't believe <laughs> I couldn't quite believe the additional powers um, that they were writing into it. Um, and the the frustrating thing, I guess, about the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, as you say, is um, they're actually in the legislation, they're entrusted with a sort of oversight role. Um, and they're trusted to sort of review reports, uh, issue recommendations on how the powers are being used. Um, and this report that they've come up with after consulting with um you know, with uh, academics and, and civil society and, and human rights lawyers, um, you know, they made a, a substantial number of recommendations for this bill. Um, and and they've just all been ignored. And I find that incredibly concerning because if this is a committee that's being given the role of oversight and yet their reports um, and suggestions for the legislation can go completely ignored, um, that to me signals a problem with with the way we set up the system. And it's the same way, uh, you know, the the independent national security monitor, you know, is also entrusted with a huge role in this legislation as well. And I just, so we've handed over oversight to people who do a really thorough job, um, I think, in terms of just consulting and trying to find a, a fair middle ground, but whose voices are totally overlooked um, in the final process. And I, I find that incredibly 
I, I mean, I find that incredibly frustrating, but I think it's very, it should be very concerning to everyone because, um, I think we're just losing, <laughs> we're losing a little bit the way the justice system is meant to work. Um, and the sort of checks and balances should be set up in this country. Mm. And I know that this particular legislation really does enable a lot of uh, interception of domestic communications between people who reside here in Australia. Uh, And that seems to be a a concern, obviously, um, and that it's not just people who are necessarily suspected of a crime, but it's also the people who are in that wider communications network of someone who the the suspect is communicating with or around. Um, And it does cover you know, areas like online um, in terms of social media accounts. So I wonder, could you take us through these particular powers that security agencies like uh, ASIO or the AFP or the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission can actually use um, through this legislation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, I mean, the, the legislation is huge, um, but I, for our purposes, I think I picked out what is the most important, which is the sort of three new warrants that they introduced. So, um, you know, I think where TOLA, just to go back, sort of empowered law enforcement to go directly to tech companies and seek, um, you know, and and gave them powers to (laughs) commandeer and give them orders. Um, This is sort of a broader um, network network. system that's introduced for warrants. So there are three types of warrants that are introduced for them to use. Um, There's a data disruption warrant, an account takeover warrant, and a network activity warrant. Um, And just before I get into them, I think the most important thing is that they're called a warrant and they're not totally a warrant. Um, I'm having some interesting arguments with people on Reddit <laughs> about, about what they perceive to be a sufficient standard for a warrant. Uh, but generally, um, warrants are meant to be signed off by a superior court judge. Um, and in this legislation, um, and actually partially in TOLA too, um, the judge overseeing it, well, it's not even a judge, it's, uh, it can be a tribunal member. Uh, from the admin, uh, from the administrative tribunal, so you often don't even have judges. And moreover, um, for two of these warrants, um, there's an emergency procedure where um, AF someone from AFP can just go to their boss in AFP and have them sign off on the quote unquote warrant. <laughs> so wow. really, just um, to me, it's that's worrying because if if you know if you called it a data disruption emergency authorization, um, okay, but when people mm. are, you know, when people encounter uh, something that's a warrant that hasn't been signed off by a judge, I think that's a really um, disingenuous uh, way for law enforcement or intelligence agencies to operate. So that's my first objection um, in this legislation that hasn't been addressed. And the Parliamentary Joint Committee had an issue with this as well. Um, and then I guess the... Um, the biggest concern that I have is about the network activity warrants, which, as you mentioned, is, um, you know, really enables them to tap entire networks um, worth of uh, communication and activity. And it's really drafted in a way that if I'm using WhatsApp or Skype, uh, theoretically, they could watch 
traffic on all of WhatsApp or all of Skype. Like it's it's just hugely overbroad. And the standard for um, getting a warrant this way is huge as well. They don't actually have to have any evidence um, that the person is committed has committed a crime or is in the process of committing a crime. They just have to have a sort of suspicion that there might be criminal activity in that particular network. Um, and so they can tap um, a network for up to, I think the period is 90 days at, at first, uh, but they can, of course, seek an extension and they can just watch the network to see um, what's happening and if criminal activity is happening. And I think that's, um, you know, we, we call it mass surveillance because that's what it is. You're, you're looking where you don't know if there's anything happening uh, for signals and signs. Uh, and if that wasn't worrying enough, um, sorry, I feel like I'm just snowballing my fear. <laughs> That's okay. You're actually representing the, the truth here and what is in the bill or the act yeah. now. And and so what what I'm particularly worried about is they can then keep the data that was captured like this for up to five years. Again, yeah. by default can be extended um, and they can use it to inform other investigations. Um, and we've seen them do this. Uh, AFP has given that testimony in front of Parliament um, about the data retention scheme, that when they capture data um, for under whatever purpose, for whatever purpose, they reuse it or they keep it and see if it becomes useful in other um, sort of criminal um, investigations or in, in court cases. And I think that's incredibly worrying because you're you know, I think if everyone can think back <laughs> five years in their lives or 10 years in their lives, um, you know, imagine that everything you've ever said or done is used as a sort of character uh, witness um, to to someone you know, or, you know, it, it, it just creates, I think, huge sort of uh, waterfall effects um, for, uh, for our rights. Oh, so those are network activity warrants. And what I found frustrating, um, particularly with these, is um, because it's such a broad um, net that they cast into the network, um, they actually can't admit a lot of this evidence directly in court. They can only use it to um, uh, to pursue investigations and, and find other evidence. Uh, but the legislation explicitly spells out that the evidence from these warrants can be used in court if it is used to convict whistleblowers. Mm. So literally, you know, anyone who might share the details of the warrant, how it's being used, who it's targeting, um, you know, anyone who might have a concern within uh, the Criminal Intelligence Commission or AFP um, that would have a conscience or a concern about the way these are being used, explicitly um, the legislation gives um, the power to silence these people and 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 use that evidence um, against them in court. And I, I find that incredibly concerning. So when um, all the MPs, you know, go on record and say, this bill is only intended to catch criminals, it's, it's never going to be abused, it's never going to be used in adverse ways. I just feel like, A, you didn't draft it tightly enough to be able to say that, and B, you've literally put in pages of caveats mm -hmm. for how you're going to prosecute people who blow the whistle, um, uh, who blow the whistle or who might want to try and reveal, you know, any abuse of power that, that could happen. Um, so that's concerning. Yeah, there are a lot of concerns for whistleblowers in Australia, but also the investigative journalists who receive tip-offs from whistleblowers as well. So it is, 
yeah, pretty concerning to hear that that is part of the legislation because we were already seeing this, um, you know, raised by journalists and people in the media saying that, you know, they uh, find it hard to protect their sources if these kinds of laws exist. Uh, and that is about democracy and transparency and accountability, which is supposedly a feature of Australia um, and every democracy around the world. Um, and one of the other parts of this as well in that um, network activity warrants was about uh, the role of different tribunals like the Administrative Appeals Tribunals. Um, mm -hmm. So could you share with us that part or aspect of the, the activity network activity warrants? Yeah, well, it's a theme through uh, all the warrants, and I, I think I already touched upon this, but that's that's sort of the issue is that it goes to uh, this administrative appeals tribunal, <clears throat> which is their tribunal members, not judges. Um, and there have actually been um, sort of recent uh, scandals because they're politically appointed um, largely. Um, there was a scandal uh I think November last year, um, that uh, the attorney general, who at the time was Christian Porter, was appointing um, underqualified people um, to the AAT, um, and it, it it's worrying because the expertise that's required um, to judge some of these warrants is just incredibly technical. And if folks are interested, I did spell that. I spelled some of the examples out on our um, on our blog um, on, on digitalrightswatch.org.au, uh, but you know they have to judge things like uh, whether there are privacy implications to the extent known, whether the execution of the warrant is likely to cause a person to suffer temporary loss of money, digital currency, or property. Uh, they're asked to weigh the public interest versus uh, the protection of journalists and their sources. And they're also asked to consider if there are alternative ways to access the data or otherwise proceed with the investigation. Mm. And I think a lot of people, even people who are technically savvy, would struggle to answer um, and, and riddle out um, some of these, um, some of these uh, questions. And I, I just think expecting um, tribunal members <clears throat> to do that uh, when actually law enforcement and intelligence agencies, they're, they're not tasked with presenting them a privacy impact assessment or a technical impact assessment. That, that's not what, you know, they don't have to present. Here are three different ways where we can do this. Which one is the best one? No, they're, they're just coming with an ask and the tribunal member is just apparently supposed to be omnipresent and understand <laughs> the technical infrastructure um, better than anyone else and, and consider that. So I, I think that's um, just, uh, yeah, it, it's just failing again to um, set it, set up this bill for success <laughs> in a way. Um, yeah. And it was a big part of the, uh, you know, the parliamentary joint committee in their report, that was one of the things they recommended that it should go to a superior court judge uh, because the level of understanding of these issues and expertise is just, um, should be just deferred to the highest possible power. Yeah, it's, it certainly requires the technical understanding, but also a huge amount of judgment that's required as well, which judges are necessarily more adept at weighing up in um, a very, I guess, learned and, um, and balanced way. So, yeah, it makes absolute sense. And one of the other components to this, uh, which I found 
particularly interesting was the fact that people um, who were suspected of this kind of activity could have their accounts taken over and had certain things actually even changed in their the content that they are making um, or just someone could potentially impersonate them using their account. So, I mean, what are some of the things that in the most extreme potential example could actually happen um, that, that at least this legislation would enable to happen in some circumstances? Um, that's a fantastic question. And we can, based on uh, reports and sort of uh, the past past decade and a half <laughs> of law enforcement and intelligence activity in this space, we can guess as to what happens. My best guess for account takeovers um, is that they uh, will use that to um, honey sort of honey trap or honey pot, um, other criminals. So, um, they do this for instance, for, um, uh, child sexual abuse imagery, um, and, uh, uh drug trafficking, um, or human trafficking is they'll infiltrate a, a certain part of the organization, um, pretend, um, to be a part. And then, you know, through communication with different parties, um, they'll, uh, they'll gather evidence. Um, so that's, sort of where I imagine it being used, but the bill is drafted really broadly. Um, so you wouldn't, no one would really know. And, and I think that's my, my big problem with both TOLA and this, and I've raised it in countless hearings in front of the parliament is there's really never any notification to an individual in any of these processes. And I can see how it would impact an ongoing investigation. But with TOLA, I argued that once an investigation is completed, people who aren't charged um, should be given a sort of ex post, you know, after the fact um, notification that they were uh, swept up in these powers. Partially, I think there's a civil liberties argument, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. You have a right to know if the state uh, tapped your communications. Um, and you have a right, I think, to question why that was if you, um, you know, if you feel like you've been wrong. Uh, but B, um, you have a right to understand if your technical digital infrastructure has been compromised. Um, and I think that's the big part that um, is being ignored through these legislations is you're really creating an environment where um, the tech sector in Australia can't be trusted because there's so much invisible um, power given to um given to these agencies. Um, I think uh, Atlesian said um, that it's costing them billions in revenue because they aren't trusted to do certain projects because they're based in Australia. Um, and, and I know from speaking to smaller tech companies that they find it challenging because, as I said, you're, you know, they're not allowed to say if they've been served a warrant. They're not allowed to indicate that anywhere. Um, they're not allowed to communicate that with any of their clients in any way. Um, so that the invisible, the invisible hand behind these legislations is a big problem for me. And in TOLA, um, actually, funny enough, if, if let's say Facebook is served with a request for assistance, it will be a representative of Facebook and a representative from AFP or ASIC um, in front of a judge arguing <laughs> whether they should have access to an individual's data. I just think it's so wonderful that we put a corporation and um, a law enforcement agency in front of a judge with like no public interest advocate or like mm. no one to speak there on behalf of the individual. Same with all of the warrants in identify and disrupt bill. There's just, 
There's no one to speak on your behalf, no one to speak on the journalist's behalf. It's really just um, law enforcement making their case. Um, and, you know, it's sort of depending on these tech companies um, to have your best interest at heart, uh, which they try to do, I think, not out of some goodness of their own heart, but because they have a business interest, of course, in trying to provide a secure service. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're just at, at this stage, if you're Australian, you pray to God that um, Facebook uh, and whoever else is, you know, running your infrastructure <laughs> has your best interest at heart. I think that's mm. very frightening. Yes. Your unknown defense. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I know that there is a petition from GetUp that's been around on this, and there's also great resources at digitalrightswatch.org.au, which people can reference with all the detail that we've touched on, and there's obviously much more up there and links to other reports as well. Um, so I just wanted to, I guess, finally understand, were there was there any resistance from crossbenchers uh, and other people that we could directly advocate to who might push for amendments down the track? Whew, good question. It'll well, have to be a quick one though, because we've got one minute. So. Yeah, yeah, no uh, yeah. I, I make this a voting issue. Like, make, whoever you're writing to, Liberal, Labor, or Green, or whoever's representing you, just you know, cite us. Use the use the explainers that we provide, that other organizations provide, to say that you're bothered by this, that you're bothered that there isn't a public interest advocate, that there isn't proper accountability, that it doesn't go to a superior court judge. Because um, I think they just have the impression that people um, that it's too big for people to care about. Um, and if you can sign the petition at GetUp, it's at a, over 115,000 people. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. We will use that. We will use that to push them for proper impact assessment on this and to to change the legislation in the future. So take action, and and we we can prevent this in the future. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.